Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato with my trusty colleague. What are we, Batman and Robin? That's Mary Gamba. Ooh. She's the co-host, executive producer of Lessons in Leadership. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. I'm going to order our leotards so we could officially be Batman and Robin. That'll be great. Uh, I'm going to leave that comment alone. That's uh, fine. Because I don't want you to call HR. Listen, uh, <laughs> Mary, tell <laughs> oh, folks. Oh, wait, I'd have to call myself. That's I'm right. Sorry, you handle HR yes, for I us. Yes, I do. Tell everyone where we're broadcasting from. Okay, we are broadcasting right now from East Main Media Studios in Little Falls, New Jersey, in this lovely set that Brian Brodor and his team have built for us. And uh, you may be listening to us on the radio on AM 970 or on the app as well. So there's a ton of great places that you could catch us. And also check out the AM 970 app and their website shows us as well. And also check us out on Google. Yeah, yeah. On Facebook, it's Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, as well as on Twitter, Steve Adubato. And you can subscribe to hear our past podcasts on Apple Podcast and on Google Play. Before we go to our good friend Kevin O'Toole's call in from out in Chicago. He's the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Brian, let me ask you a quick question. Mm -hmm. We've moved, we've transitioned, we're innovating from, we were doing pure radio, only audio, podcast. We're shooting for the first time in your great studio, right? And we said the one thing we didn't want to do was lose sight of the way we talk, as informal as we are, and even though it was on video, how are we doing? I think we're doing great. I don't think we've missed a step. And so my staring at the camera, seeing how I look, does not cause a problem yet. <laughs> Steve, you be you. Just you Just do be you. me. Yep. Yeah. You yeah. Keep you. looking they, in that, that camera. They, it's perfect. They, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so speaking of good friends who uh, are not egocentric, I have no segue here, by I, the way. I wonder where that was going. <laughs> well, listen, we're joined by Kevin O'Toole, who's the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, but happens to be on a business trip out in the very windy city, Chicago. How you doing, my friend, Kevin? I'm good, Steve. How you doing? Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thank you. By the way, by way of background, Kevin O'Toole served more than a few years in the state legislature in New Jersey, including in the Senate. How many in total? 22. 11 in the Assembly, 11 in the Senate. And tell folks about your business practice as a lawyer. So we have 50-odd lawyers in Cedar Grove right next to Little Falls, and we practice in New York, New Jersey, defense, litigation, risk management, and some other things that people really don't care about. So that's what I do professionally. I want to clarify. You said you've had 50 odd lawyers. They're not odd lawyers. They mean 50 <laughs> plus, correct, Kevin? Yeah, 55, 57, depending on the day. So, yes, they're not odd. Well, some of them are odd, but they're about 57 <laughs> lawyers that we have under our roof in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. Okay, so let's do this. Kevin is a longtime friend. He actually, to fully disclose, Kevin, as a very, very young man, I was only just a little bit older. Kevin was an aide and a top campaign advisor to the gentleman that I had beat when I ran for the state legislature in 1983, John Kelly, God rest his soul, first-class guy. And in 1985, John Kelly came back and beat me at 27. That's why I lost my seat in the legislature. <laughs> and Kevin, you were around for that, weren't you? Well, I was not around for your successful run in 83. I was there for your defeat in 85. <laughs> you, when you cried like a little, little baby. Oh, oh you leave that God. part out of the story, Steve. You cried. Well, how did, No, Kevin. that's true. Ask Nikki Greco, he cried. Oh. Our attorney, our mutual and friend. Oh, oh, stop! It's not even really the cry. Best, best did I really loss ever? Yes, you did. You cried. Then Montclair went home to mommy. I remember. <laughs> but anyway, first of all, he's I right. I can't believe you. That. Don't you do not feel awful? Why was that? Why hold on? It's not about me, even though I'd like it to be. Kevin, what, what, seriously, no. Why was that the best loss ever? I was crying. It was terrible. Because in politics, it would have stunted your growth. Look what you've gone on to an award-winning this and that. 
wonderful stuff. If you stayed in the legislature, you would have run for governor or Congress or the U.S. Senate and been just grinding out in D.C. and wasting <laughs> your talent. That's my take on it. So let, let's transition from that, Kevin, because it seems to me what you're saying, and you and I have talked a lot, and Kevin was mentored along with me by my father, which it worked for him and didn't work for me. I mean, <laughs> Kevin, that being said, Kevin, part of leadership for you, part of being really strong is dealing with quote-unquote losses, failures, and knowing what to do with them. Is that it? Yeah. Listen, your dad, as you know, as much as you didn't get along with him in the early days, was one of the greatest political teachers that we have seen in New Jersey. And I say that without jest or without joking. He was the smartest political strategist I have ever met in 35 years in politics. And one of the things he taught me is that, first of all, don't savor the wins too long or don't suffer through the losses too long. Just push on to the next fight. And you just got to get ready and he just soldiers on. You know how he taught you, Steve. Every fight that you have, you have to prepare as if your life depends on it. And if you win or lose, you turn the page and move on the next day. You know, it's interesting. You, you talk about my dad, but the reality is your parents have taught you an awful lot. Maybe they did or didn't use the term leadership. They taught you an awful lot about life. How has that impacted how you conduct yourself as a leader, not just previously in the Senate, in New Jersey, but also as a business leader and, and a member of the community. How, how has your upbringing influenced your leadership style, Kevin O'Toole? Two ways. So my parents got married in the 50s. They were the first like interracial marriage, Korean Irish in Essex County back in the 50s. It was hard for them to get housing. I heard the stories as a young boy about some of the things that they had to overcome. Never once did they complain. They said, you work hard, get there first, punch in, work late don't complain, get your education, and take care of your family. And my mom and dad to this day serve as my greatest motivators and influencers of my life. And my father just worked hard his two or three jobs. They qualified for Medicare, Medicaid. They qualified for food stamps. They never said they wanted to take it because they didn't want a handout. They were very, and to this day, very influential as to how I conduct myself. I'm going to challenge Kevin in this way. By the way, if you're listening and you don't see us on the video side, Kevin O'Toole, our good friend and longtime colleague, former member of the state legislature in New Jersey, runs a terrific law firm, one of the big supporters of what we do on public broadcasting, also the chairman of the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey. Let me ask you this, Kevin. Do you have millennials, lawyers who happen to be millennials in your firm? I do. You just talked about my dad, your parents. Let's just call it old school, tough, not exactly the same, but both of us knew that excuses were not going to fly in your home or in my home, fair to say? Never, ever, ever. Both of us knew that working hard wouldn't be good enough, that success and getting it done, or as Mary has a sign in front of her, make it happen, was all that mattered. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Do you find that leading and managing those who are just a bit younger than you, millennials, Kevin O'Toole, is more challenging in addition to because of your background or in spite of your background? I don't know. So growing up, either you got a job done, you paid your own way through school, you paid for your own car, you put money on the table for the mortgage or for some of the groceries. This is the age of 16, 17, 18. You just did it. You, really, you didn't have to explain yourself or kind of make an excuse. You just did it. The millennials, and I'll put my son who's 22 in that age group, it's a very different psychology. They grew up in the era where everyone gets an award because they stepped on the field for five seconds. It's a different place where not all of them have to put themselves through school. They either have their parents to rely upon or they find some other means to borrow money or whatnot. It's a different psychology. The folks that I deal with today, you just can't say, just get it done. 
you have to talk to them differently. You got to reward them differently, pay attention to them differently. And you have to just accept that they are not what we were growing up 30 years ago. It's a very different. Do place. you accept it, Kevin? You have no choice. It takes you a while to get your arms around it. Listen, I have, I have 100 employees. Each one of those employees, I go around in a week, I talk to them, see how they're doing, send an email. Every week I bring in donuts and coffees and all kinds of things, and you treat them differently. In our day, you would have none of that. Just like shut up, get up there, cut the grass, pump the gas, go to school and come home, repeat cycle and rinse. There's no negotiation. Zero, zero. And you just like rolled up your sleeves and got it done. And you never waited to get a pat on the back and said, great job. Mm. You know, in the day growing up, if you went out and played baseball and you're four for five, you come home and dad's like, well, what about the fifth time you, you didn't get a hit, <laughs> you know, and that type of thing. I hear you. Hey, Kevin, shift gears, because one of the things that Kevin O'Toole is noted for, for those who know Kevin and respect him on both I hate that expression, both sides of the aisle. I think they mean Democrats and Republicans. Hey, a lot of people who are neither and there are folks who, who know Kevin. Kevin's a very good negotiator. He negotiated in the legislature in a minority party, meaning the party that was not in power. He negotiated with governors who happen to be of a different party. He negotiates as chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. He negotiates as the leader of his law firm with other great leaders, Tom Scrivo and others that you work with. But here's my question. Your view of negotiating and leadership, describe it. So first of all, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. So I surround myself with people who are much smarter than me, whether it's staff or whether it's, you know, colleagues or clients, you want to collaborate and find out, you know, what they think is the common road and where's the end game. And then you walk into a negotiation. You just can't say, this is where I'm going from A to Z. And there's no negotiation. You have to really be open-minded and have a sense of where you want to go, but it's not just, you know, hard and fast, take it or leave it. And negotiation, sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier, but you have to be flexible and you have to allow the other side to believe that they get a win at the end of the table. But also, Kevin, I've also seen you walk away from the table. Well, listen, you don't give away the store based on principle. If you can't negotiate a deal that's fair to your side or your client, then you say, I'm going to try the case. You walk away, you push away politely, you shake hands and say, we're not going to reach a deal, which sometimes happens. And then you let this thing play itself out either in a courtroom or some other arena. Hmm. Mary Gamba has a question for you. Go, Mary. Yeah, absolutely. And I was shaking my head, and Steve and I were looking at each other. And my question to you, Kevin, is this. With the millennials and with the younger folks coming up today, how do you teach that? Because, you know, having grown up as we had and just knowing that if we wanted something done and how we got it done, how do you teach the younger people in your firm to be better negotiators? Because most of the things in their lives maybe were handed to them. So how do you teach them to go into that room and be confident but not be rigid? So what you do is you let them sit by you to observe at first, then you let them participate, you let them be part of the process. You don't really talk down to them, but you got to kind of break it down in bite-sized morsels for them. And then you got to empower them. You got to trust that they're going to be able to just take the training wheels off and kind of stand in your shoes and do what you do. And listen, they're tech savvy. They're very smart. They think in different ways. There's things that we learn off of them. So we listen to them and then we kind of incorporate some of their strengths, incorporate our old school negotiation skill set and you usually get a better product. But once you incorporate them, you empower them, you'll find out they'll buy into the process. So let's do this, Kevin. I told you before we got on the air that one of the areas we're going to be focusing on on lessons in leadership. By the way, Steve Adubato, Mary Gamma, Kevin O'Toole, calling in from out in Chicago, chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. By the way, Kevin, tell everyone the formal a name, the full name of your firm. O'Toole Scrivo. O'Toole Scrivo. That is the full name. Got it. Hey, I said we were going to talk about presidential leadership. Let's leave the current president 
off the table for off now. Off the table, yes. Mary and I will analyze that a little bit later on. But I got to ask you, I'm reading a book that was put out by the folks at C-SPAN. And what they did was they analyzed the uh, greatest, the worst, and the in-between presidents. And I, Kevin, can I get your feedback on this? I know we didn't prep this. They said that Abraham Lincoln is the number one president, Lincoln, excuse me, Washington number two, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt three, Ted Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt four. Can we just do this again? Did you do any reading about, because I know you're a student of leadership, did you read it all about these presidents and did Lincoln have any impact on you? Yeah, certainly Lincoln did. I mean, listen, he pulled together the country probably through the most difficult time of our history. I mean, the Civil War, he had to sit there and pull back a country that was totally ripped from two parts. Talk about negotiating. You talk about negotiation. It's, you know, he probably stands out as the foremost leader in terms of our presidents. Now, in our modern time, you know, I can start with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was an interesting character who, you know, obviously shocked the world when he became the president, but his fault was he became a micromanager. I remember reading a story about him when he got into office. He went out into the front yard and was watching a mechanic fix an air conditioning <laughs> unit. And the mechanic turns over after like an hour and says, you would think the president has something better to do. Now, Jimmy Carter is a very principled individual, but he was a micromanager. Now, the opposite, you saw Ronald Reagan in the 80s, to 1988, he was an absolute delegator. He had some really smart people around him, James Baker and other folks who would make decisions, and he empowered them to make really smart decisions. I don't think he felt threatened by it. Then you saw Bill Clinton, who I think was one of the most artful politicians we've ever seen in our life, who after he took a drubbing, I guess it was in 94, came back and reinvented himself and just pivoted, did welfare reform. And, you know, the, the American public up until recently kind of embraced him. Is that leadership? And then... Oh, hold on, Kevin, before you go past I Clinton, is that leadership yeah. or is that just being a savvy politician? Or is being a savvy politician leadership? No, I think it would be more a savvy politician than anything else. But, you know, listen, Clinton projected an aura and a statesmanship about him that he got things done. But he was obviously very, 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 very savvy. But hold on one second. I have this thing, and I'm not a purist. You know that. I'm a Boy yeah. Scout. But I want to be clear on this. I've always said, and I've written about this, and if you ever have any interest, to folks out there listening and watching, I wrote uh, several articles about this, that I thought that whatever leadership or political traits that Bill Clinton had, what he gave away in my view, was a lack of integrity. Put it this way. It was one thing lying under oath about the Lewinsky stuff, but what really bothered me, and you and I are old school in terms of loyalty, Kevin, Bill Clinton had people around him who had to hire lawyers, lawyers that are not cheap, like Kevin O'Toole, right? I don't mean yeah. like cheap. They're not cheap. You hire great lawyers, right? Yeah. Those people yeah. had to testify before a grand jury either lie for him or not lie for him, and he knew what the truth was. And for me, Kevin, I could never get, and I'm not a purist, but I can't get past the lack of loyalty that he had for those people around him because he threw them under the bus in an effort to save what? Whether it was his marriage or his presidency or his, his reputation, I don't know what. But to me, that's bad stuff, Kevin. Listen, remember when Vince Foster, one of his closest buddies, you know, committed suicide and, and left the note about it being a blood sport in D.C. It had just destroyed him and everybody else that was associated with him. And look, whether it's Iran-Contra with Bush, you know, a lot of folks got caught up in that controversy. Whether it's present day, folks have to get lawyers. They get brought up believing in a leader, and sometimes things go sideways. And ultimately, the leader has to own that. 
ultimately the leader has to lead and be responsible for the people he or she has brought into the fold. Hold on, Kevin. And we're not going to talk about Trump in particular, because I think this is the case with a lot of presidents. I'll share my views as to Trump's demeanor and its connection to leadership when we let Kevin go. But I got to say something, Kevin. When presidents or top leaders are constantly looking to pin things on other people underneath them, it's a horrible leadership quality because you put them there. As a leader, you put the Department of Defense person there. You put the Secretary of State there. You put them there, correct? Listen, leaders lead. Leaders accept responsibility. When credit is due, you give it to others around you. When blame is to be had, you have to accept it. And that's when people believe in you as a leader. When you make that selection to this person be your Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense or Secretary of Education, that is your decision after you vetted them. And if they have failed you, then that is your failure, not theirs. By the way, I cut you off, Kevin. Any other presidents you want to mention? Because I'm going to ask you one quickie about Chris Christie, who you were a close friend to. We both are are friends with on on a certain level. You, You want to do Christie? Yeah, let's do Christy. Okay, because here's the thing. Chris and I, and by the way, you can Google the interviews that I've had, a very spirited dialogue I've had with Governor Christie over the years. And Mm. he's a great friend, and I care about him personally. But I've often argued with him. He used to tell me I was too soft and whatever. I said, Chris, sometimes you don't have to be in people's face. Governor style being directly in your face, he argued helped get things done. You were one of the people who helped him get things done. Go ahead, Kevin O'Toole. First of all, he was one of the smartest political minds in New Jersey. And he got, listen, his pension reform, if he did nothing else but pension reform in eight years and saved $120 billion in savings, it's like a modern-day miracle. What he did working with a very Democratic Senate and very Democratic Assembly, whether you like him or not, you have to respect what he did. Is that leadership? He when he had, of course it's leadership, yep. 100%. Listen, nobody argued more behind a closed door than I did with Chris when I thought that he was wrong or being stubborn, but he would accept the criticism, he would accept people who would have a different opinion. But at the end of the day, when he made the decision that people he was leading, they would follow his lead. And that's what happened. I thought he was an exceptionally strong leader. I really do. I, I enjoyed working with him. And frankly, the collaborations and fights between Sweeney and Christie and I really did not mind going back and forth, having negotiations on both sides for a better New Jersey. By the way, Kevin O'Toole, the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, his law firm, O'Toole Scrivo, formerly served in the state legislature for more than a couple of decades, including in the Senate. He mentioned Steve Sweeney. We're going to have Steve Sweeney, the president of the state Senate in New Jersey, a very strong leader, not just governmentally, but because of his work as a union leader. He's an iron worker, right, Kevin? He's an iron worker. He's as tough as they come. He's very pragmatic. I enjoy working with Steve for eight years. Consider him a close personal friend. Spoke to him this morning, as a matter of fact, and he is uh, an exceptional public servant. Yeah, and Steve and I have a lot in common because we like to work with our hands, Mary. Oh, yes. Hardly. That's, <laughs> that's the last line right there, Mary. Listen, before I let Kevin, Kevin, we'll you're out in Chicago. Out. By the way, Kevin O'Toole's with us in Chicago calling in. He's out there trying to make money as, as a business person, as a lawyer. Last thing, biggest leadership lesson you've learned in your life, A, B, number one challenge that you face today as leader, go. Number one, the biggest lesson, whatever you were telling people to do, you have to be willing to do it yourself. You can't just dictate it to them. You have to roll up your sleeves and do it, and you have to stand by what you mean. Don't be a hypocrite. If you tell them they have to be in a certain place at a certain time with a certain moral code, you have to hold yourself in that same light and be that same leader, and they have to believe in you. Number one challenge you face? Is just having people have the same type of work ethic and principle (laughs) that the old school us. That's really tough for us to do. And understanding this new dynamic, this new generation, and, and molding them, somewhat into folks that we have molded into. It is a very different dynamic. Work ethic-wise, culturally, it's a very different place. 
You but know, it's bright. It really is. It's, it's a cool dynamic. It is, and it's a challenge every day. You've been listening to Kevin O'Toole, the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a very successful attorney with his firm together with Tom Scrivo and a longtime friend of ours, formerly in the state legislature. Kevin and I, I, I called Kevin out in Chicago, and I said, listen, are you willing to do this? And he's such a good guest, and he's such a strong communicator <laughs> that you don't need to talk through what you're going to talk about. You just know it's going to be a good conversation. Mary, final thoughts before I let him go? No, Kevin, thank you so much. I know that. It, thank you. Yeah, you walked out of what you were doing, so thank you. We really appreciate By the way, we said on. it was a right. five-minute interview. Um, yeah. We told yeah. Kevin five <laughs> minutes. Um, so, so, Lies. Liars. Leaders shouldn't lie. <laughs> Sorry, Kevin O'Toole. We'll be back right after this. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, thank you. Bye. Stay tuned. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato with my colleague, Mary Gamba. We want to thank our friend Kevin O'Toole, former Senator Kevin O'Toole, Chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, also a very successful attorney, calling in. By the way, he said leaders shouldn't lie, and I called him the other night, and I said, Kevin, you're in Chicago on a business trip. Can you take five minutes to talk five to us minutes. on our show? Mm-hmm. How long are we on? Let's see, uh, about 30. No, no we're on about 20, 20 minutes? minutes. Yeah, 20 minutes. I think he's mad. I, think I don't think so. There friend. were a couple of sighs toward the end there. So <laughs> I think he was like giving us the hint. <laughs> but, you know, by the way, we're talking about presidential leadership here. I've got my book, my, one of my favorites by Donald Phillips, Lincoln on Leadership. This is a good one. By the way, these are classics. Mm-hmm. Washington. That's a really big book. That's a really big book. Really big book. I read it last night by myself. And this is the Ron Chernow book, Alexander Hamilton. This is the book in which the great play Hamilton comes from. I didn't read the book, but I saw the play, and it's amazing. Is that right? Amazing. Well, it comes from Chernow's work. Yeah. And uh, this book on presidents, that's it's put out by C-SPAN, but it's frankly been written and contributed to by all these great writers and others. But Mary, before we talk about that, let's get this one out of the way. Kevin O'Toole said something I didn't expect him to say. Yeah. He said that in 1985, when I lost my seat in the legislature, right, after I won it, because mm-hmm. he said he wasn't there for the my victory, but he was there. How long were you there for? I was just asking. Legally? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there for 18 months, and then in two years, I had, I had no, I was there for two years. It's two I years. I, yeah. I think our two listeners years. wanted term, to know. One term. So I was in at 25 out of 27, but here's the point. Kevin was working for my opponent, and I didn't expect him to say, I was there the night you lost, because actually my opponent, John Kelly, who I beat, came there, and Kevin must have been with him, mm-hmm. and he started saying, Kevin was saying I was crying. Yeah. And you were laughing. I was shocked. I was shocked. Well, number one, I don't think I've ever seen you cry and laughing laughing because I'm just visualizing a grown man. But really, you weren't. How old were you? 22 at the time? No, I said 27. 27? You were 27? Yeah. I thought you were younger. So then that's even. You got to vote first before you're in the legislature. (laughs) Go ahead. I just pictured you there crying. I picture the tears coming out of your eyes. But what does that have to do with leadership? I don't know. That's why I wanted to find out. I was looking forward to continuing the conversation. Hold on. I think that what you're implying, and we will talk about, by the way, Lincoln Mm -hmm. cried. The greatest oh, leader, sure. of, greatest presidential leader of all time. Mm-hmm. You seem to be saying, as Tom Hanks said in the great film. Yeah. What's the name of the film? <laughs> <laughs> a League of Their Own. A League of Their Own. Thank you very there's much. No our, crying our daughter in Olivia watched it. Yeah. You mm-hmm. say there's no crying in baseball and no crying in leadership. There should not be crying. Oh. There should not be, but not in a public place. You said you were, he wasn't even on your team. No, and he there saw were 2,000 people in a room. And you said it was ugly crying. You said it was like no, maybe some sobbing going on. No, I never used the term on. ugly crying. Here's the point I'm trying to make. I do think that leaders, mm-hmm. regardless of the circumstance, you can show emotion. 
-hmm. Now, I think you're implying out of control emotion is a problem. Right. It sounded to me as if there was actually sobbing going on. So I didn't know if it was just a couple okay. of tears, you know, and that's fine. It's good. It showed your, your soft side. This. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Stop tape. No. Um, let's go back to this presidential thing. One of the things that strikes me about, and again, if you want to read about presidential leadership, log on to our website at stand-deliver.com. Also on Facebook and Twitter, where people can follow you, you write a lot of great articles and columns based on things going on in leadership today. So people can follow you on Facebook at Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually wrote in Lessons in Leadership, this book, Lessons in Leadership, I wrote Leadership Lessons from JFK and also leadership lessons from Lincoln. And as we're talking about presidential leadership, leadership oh. lessons from the Godfather. <laughs> Somehow that book has magically gone into almost every segment. Don Corleone had nothing on Lincoln. No, but mm -hmm. this is my point. The reason I wrote about Kennedy, can we do Kennedy for a second? Sure. And this is one of the things I find fascinating about Kennedy. In this book from C-SPAN, he is not listed as one of the top 10 presidents. Really? And I don't know if I agree with that or not, but I will say this, because there's a whole bunch in the middle and then they're really terrible presidents. But I'm going to try this one. The reason I was fascinated by Kennedy was because in 1962, there was something called the Bay of Pigs. Do you know what it is? I'm, I'm aware, yeah. All right, I'm not quizzing you, but yeah, here's the deal. Please don't. Not on history anyway. Listen, there's the Bay of Pigs. Brian, you know the deal? Mm -hmm. So Kennedy's convinced, based on flawed intelligence from the military people who were advising him, a leader's only as good as his or her people, right? They said, we can go into Cuba. We go in there with X number of troops. We're going to storm the beaches. We're going to take Castro out because Cuba is messing with us. They're tied to Russia. Trust me on this, Mary. There's a logic to this. We're going to go in there. It'll be a 20-minute operation. We're going to take them out. Bay of Pigs, that's where it was. Except what happened was they actually went there, and the Cuban military was waiting for them and decimated the American troops killed countless Americans. It was such a terrible, terrible embarrassment. It was one of the greatest failures of presidential leadership ever. Kennedy was written off as young, immature, inexperienced. He relied too much on the generals who were much older than he was. He could have folded. What I've always been impressed by about Kennedy, and I've always thought that because he was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963, that sometimes the myth around him is different than the reality. Mm -hmm. What I was struck by is he turned around and he said, what do I need to learn from this? And in my chapter on Kennedy, trust me, there's a point here. He said, you know what? I screwed up so terribly. He told everyone around him, this was on me. He never blamed the generals. He never blamed anyone else. He said, my naivete, my trusting you guys, my not asking the right questions caused me to make a terrible decision. And within a year, less than a year, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And those missiles were just a few miles off of Miami facing the United States and he stared down the Russians and in the face of nuclear disaster because he had better intelligence, he was more mature, he asked better questions and he turned himself into a great presidential leader in the Cuban Missile Crisis and just a few months before was horrible. Now peaks and valleys, mm -hmm. ups and downs, learning from failures, you say. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great example of doing just that. And your other great book, You Are the Brand, talks about the rebranding of whether it could be any type of failure in business or in a presidential situation, but being able to pick yourself up, 
own the situation and then learn from it and come out better on the other end. That's what we're doing. That's what leadership is all about. And people who just, quote, keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different outcome. I think someone really smart said the definition of an insane person is that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, let's yeah. do this. Presidential leadership. So Donald Trump. Let's try I to stay away we from the pot. I knew we were going to go there. No, okay. I'm kidding. Often no, you, you don't go. know where I'm going to go. No, no. But you fine. do here. Well, because you said you weren't going to we go there four with minutes, Kevin, right? so, but no, go ahead. No, because I, I know what I want to talk about. I'm less interested in the policies and the politics of Donald Trump, and I'm more interested in presidential demeanor. Recently, there was a, as we do this program, just really a couple days ago, there was a meeting between the president and key members of Congress, and Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is standing across from the president, talking to him. He happened to post that picture and say, she's out of control, she's having a meltdown, she's ridiculous, she's absurd. And many of the people who were in that room said the president's tone and demeanor did not communicate, including Senator Robert Menendez, who's worked with a lot of Republicans before. He said his tone and demeanor, he didn't say his mental state, but his tone and demeanor scared him, and he didn't seem stable to him. The concept of stability, demeanor, even, and being a great leader and a great president, you say? I think that having those qualities for any leader, especially when you're the president, when all eyes are on you, whether you know a camera's on or not, are critical to effective leadership. Because if they see that the president is faltering, if they see that, you know, you can't see him break a sweat, and even, you know, scarier is if they see him literally being almost like abrupt or whatever, you know, they were seeing, it's going to make you feel not as confident in him as a leader. And, and the name calling, good. you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. I've never been a fan. And again, this is interesting because we, we had mm -hmm. a guest from uh, Atlantic. Yeah. Jim Ferguson was with us and we talked mm -hmm. about being a nice person. He said, listen, nice people, respectful people, courteous people can be really strong leaders. I'm going to argue that even those who like Donald Trump, don't see him as nice and courteous and thoughtful. They actually question the degree to which he has empathy and compassion. I don't know if that's true or not. Right. I can only go by his demeanor and how he sure. conducts himself in public. Does that concern you as someone who, frankly, is awfully empathetic, compassionate, and has a pretty darn even demeanor, no matter what the circumstance? It does, because what you want to see in your leader is a reflection of yourself, or at least your same do moral we? compass. You do. You absolutely do. You're going to follow someone that you see the similar qualities that you see in yourself. And if you see somebody like Trump, or it could be your boss, acting erratic or in a way that you wouldn't, it will make you question your own morals of why am I following this person? So it does. I think that you want to reflect in that other person the same qualities that you want in yourself. It's so interesting because Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, who Kevin O'Toole talked about, Lincoln suffered from depression, yeah. tremendous anxiety. He was not an overly confident person. Right. He was, believe it or not, very self-aware of what he perceived to be his unattractive appearance in public. I mean, all these things went mm -hmm. on. And there's mental illness around him and his family. But what struck me, and I've never figured this out because I don't know if there was medication or there really wasn't what we have today. I wonder that Lincoln, with all those challenges, with all those insecurities, whatever other mental health issues were going on, led us through the Civil War. Yeah. It goes back to what we really started this whole series about is there's no excuse. He didn't use that as an excuse. He didn't use his, if you want to say mental illness or just challenges that he had. I don't or even think they called it that then, They didn't the even way. know what it was. They didn't right. know what to call it. 
but we can phrase it that now. But he didn't let that be an excuse or an obstacle to get to where he wanted to be. He had his vision, he was passionate about it, and he was going to figure out how to get there despite any obstacle or mountain that he had to do in order to get there. And one of the things that Lincoln did, I want to make it clear on this, is a wonderful book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Lincoln. It's called Team of Rivals. And the whole idea was he only won by a certain percentage of the vote. And trust me, it wasn't a plurality. It was just a few more votes than his opponent in the 1860 election. Why am I saying this? Because most of the country was against him. He figured out those who were against him, he brought into his cabinet. He brought them in to be closest to him to help him make decisions. The person who was running against him for president, he turned around and asked him if he could help write his inaugural yeah. address. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, oh, right? Which I mean, comes from I know I this presidential leadership book called right. The Godfather by Mario Puzo. I'm sorry. Out of time. I apologize. But <laughs> that he I'm stole a, from the library. <laughs> That's a side This is from the Newark Public Library in 1978. I'm I sorry. I'm not even joking. Yeah, it is. I noticed you can tell, a stamp the on the side. Yeah. Listen, I'm sorry going from Lincoln to Trump to Washington to the, to Godfather. the Godfather. To I Mary can see Gamba they're all connected. It's fine. It's this has been good. the Leadership Hour. I'm Steve Adubato. That is Mary Gamba. And it's been an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Check out next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Nancy Blotner. At Caldwell University, we believe that all citizens should be informed about the important issues that affect their daily lives. That's why we're proud to support programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by Hackensack Meridian Health. PSCNG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. Caldwell University, the law firm of Gibbons PC. MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey. Englewood Health. And by Community Food Bank of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by NJ Advance Media. And by New Jersey Globe. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. It's my pleasure to introduce two very distinguished business leaders in the state. Michelle Sikirka, President and CEO, New Jersey Business and Industry Association, also co-chair of an organization called Opportunity New Jersey, and also Ralph Albert Thomas, CEO and Executive Director of New Jersey Society of CPAs and the Treasurer of Opportunity New Jersey. Good to see both of you. Thank you. Thank you. We've had discussions before about the business community in the state, but let me ask you, um, Ralph, this organization, Opportunity New Jersey, is what and why? Well, uh, Steve, it's a, a nonpartisan group, and really the intent of it is for the group to bring to the attention, uh, be the voice, if you will, of the business community and individuals uh, here in New Jersey uh, and in terms of you know, the public policy that's being vetted and, and other things that are going on um, you know, down in Trenton with the administration and the legislature. But Michelle, respectfully, you've, you've been with us many times. We also have had the State Chamber of Commerce on with us, others. Is, how is this organization different than the Business and Industry Association or the Chamber or any other business group? 
So this is a larger coalition of like-minded associations coming together. So we have 16 business associations working together to establish that one voice. So it's all about leveraging, for example, the research we talk about all the time at BIA. Sure. Now we can leverage it through Opportunity New Jersey with these 16 partners. So coalition building in the business community is what this is all about. What's the main message? See, we actually, after this segment, sure. we're going to have a conversation with the head of the EDA, Economic Development Authority, also the head of Choose New Jersey as well. I'm sure they're going to have a certain perspective on Governor Murphy's economic agenda. Is there a perspective on the part of Opportunity NJ, or is it too soon? Well, no. Well, the message for Opportunity New Jersey is make New Jersey affordable and do it now. Um, what it's we not, you say? So everything, everything in our plan, our agenda for Opportunity New Jersey is all about driving affordability and regional competitiveness, business competitiveness within the Northeast, which we are not. We are dead last, dead last in, in the Northeast. What? In everything, in, in taxes, cost of doing business. I mean, you think about what business owners have every day have to deal yeah. with, right? And the costs that we have to run a business and regulations and mandates. But if the governor and his team argue that more jobs are coming into New Jersey, how does that square with what Michelle just said? Well, you know, you may be getting more jobs in, but uh, back to Michelle's point, the, the objective is to make us more competitive. When you look at the data that's out there, New Jersey is either next to last or dead last in a, in a number of categories. So it's really to get us to be competitive so that we can uh, be on the same, you know, uh, playing ground as New York, Pennsylvania, and other states in the region. Devil's advocate. Okay. People often say, those who are bullish, if you will, on business in New Jersey, look at our location. Look at where we are in terms of the... the, the the airports, look at where we are in terms of our workforce, how talented they are. Look at where we are in terms of Philadelphia and New York. By the nature of those and other things, we're very competitive, you say? First of all, we are bullish on New Jersey. We're the biggest cheerleaders you could possibly have in the state of New Jersey, right? However, and, and every time we speak, the first thing we do is we start with the assets of the state. Everything you right. said is a tremendous asset in the state of New Jersey. We don't take that away. However, the harsh reality around all those assets is we're the most expensive state in the nation. We need property tax reform. We need pension reform. Right. And this is a well, pro- back up. I'm sorry, Michelle. <laughs> property tax reform, isn't that a question of what every property owner pays for in his or her home. And you're talking about public employee pension reform. What does that have to do with the business community? Because the business community pays those costs. We pay 40% yeah. of the property taxes across the state you mean of New corporate Jersey. corporate taxes? Absolutely. No, I'm talking about property tax because businesses own, businesses own oh. land in the state it's of New Jersey. So we often talk about property as if it's only residential That's property. Right. Yeah, but, it, but it is the business community that uh, also contributes to that. And that, yeah, well, that's where we're not competitive with our, you know, New York and other, other jurisdictions. And Governor, Governor Murphy, and I promise we will have him soon on State <laughs> Affairs, he has said we need to increase taxes on the wealthiest people in the state in order to achieve what he calls tax fairness. Well, I'll uh, get you. Okay. We do not have... <laughs> A revenue problem in the state of New Jersey. We have a spending problem in the state of New Jersey. The state's debt has increased 382% over the last 10 years. Okay, that is Democratic and Republican administrations. It was Correct. a Christie administration before the Murphy administration. And was it going up during that time as well? Yes, and before that. This is decades. This is not, this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an economic issue. Jump back in, Ralph. Yeah, uh, 
You know, uh, we reach out to our members, and you know, part of the discussions that they have with their clients, both uh, individual these and business. These are CPA firms. These are CPA firms, and part of the discussion is, should I stay in New Jersey? And our members, in a recent poll that we took with them, 75% of them suggested to their clients, their businesses, that they ought to consider leaving New Jersey. Come on, three no. quarters of them three are saying quarters. leave the state. Leave the state. We got the Jersey Shore. We've got no, no, resort we've, activities. We've got, we've got all got those parks. Great, we've got all these great things. We've got these great assets, but it is the cost to be able to have those assets, and that is what I think drives that message that comes from my members. So, if the governor argues, and he in fact gets an increase in the millionaires' tax, how would this impact the agenda of your organization? Taxes matter. Taxes absolutely matter. When you sit and you line up. The factors that you're going to consider when you're going to live somewhere and work somewhere and grow somewhere and stay somewhere, taxes matter. We can't say that they don't. So it's great that we have these tremendous assets. And again, we tout those assets every day. You know what? We're willing to pay a premium for all the good assets in the state of New Jersey. Not to mention we have pretty good schools. Go ahead. Yeah. Awesome schools. Ranked number one in the nation, right? By but, Education Week. Go ahead. But to that point, exactly, right? We're willing to pay a premium. We're now beyond super premium. And let me just say that number one, K-12. Outstanding, excellent, but the cost to deliver that, over $21,000 on average per pupil per year times 13 years. Massachusetts, number two, is doing it at half the cost. But what would the governor do if the governor wanted to be responsive to the argument that you and your colleagues are making an opportunity in New Jersey? What would he do? It's not going to lower the income tax. He can't lower property taxes by himself. But I think it goes back to a comment that Michelle says. It's a suspend issue. You know, how do we do things more efficiently here in the state? We have duplication of effort in, in a number of areas. You're talking about merging school districts and, and communities, shared services. Absolutely. Uh, when you look at in the uh, Path to Progress report, that was one of the suggestions, that we needed to think about going to a regional school system. That Senator Sweeney, Senator President Sweeney, check right. out our website. Uh, it'll be up right now. Uh, Senator Sweeney yeah. talked about that Path I sat to on Progress. That. I sat on that committee and uh, on that work group, and, and, and that was a big issue there. How do we do things more efficient? We took a look at the cost to deliver the, the mm. services and goods and, and for the organization. And that was the big issue. How do we, how do, we do these things more efficiently? Well, um, to Ralph and to Michelle, I want to thank you for sharing this perspective of Opportunity New Jersey. And again, right after this, uh, we're going to have a different conversation about some of the same issues with people who see it a little differently. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back right after this. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, Find us online and follow us on social media. We welcome Greg Lalavi, business manager for International Union of Operating Engineers, local 825. Good to see you, Greg. Good to see you. Thanks. A whole bunch of things to talk about, infrastructure issues, the gateway tunnel, um, the future of the work that you and your colleagues do and how technology is affecting it. But let's get this out of the way. Last time you were with us, um, I'm calling this Greg Lalavi 2.0. <laughs> um, you look fitter. Thank you. Get it out of the way. Tell folks. Uh, lost 117 pounds so far. Huh. Uh, I, by the way, I heard a gasp. <laughs> it's wow. Uh, we'll talk offline about your secret, or we'll put it on our website. But um, well done. Thank you. And uh, keep keep working out and taking care of yourself. In that spirit, the condition of the union movement in this country. Mm -hmm. Lots going on. A lot of questions about it. Federal administration doing what they're doing or not. But what you have said to me, and I should make it clear, I've done a significant amount of leadership development for Local 825, and so leadership is what we talk about. 
you're big on innovation technology and all of a sudden there's this educational component to the future of people who are engineers. What does that mean? Uh, for the future of people who are going to be operating engineers. Define the difference. Well, for, for those of us who do the hands-on operating of heavy construction equipment or repair of heavy construction equipment, there is a technology move going on where GPS is moving into machinery. Uh, there's artificial intelligence. There's autonomous control. And we're taking a good, hard look at how to educate our members in two veins. One, we want to take our existing membership and give them the platform to transition uh, into the technology. And then we want to be able to capture those young people as they're moving through STEM and meme programs uh, through their high schools or Votech high schools and bring them into the world of operating engineers. But the bottom line, Greg, is that, and we've talked about this a lot, and it's important people understand this, that the role of operating engineers has changed dramatically, largely because of technology and innovation. Always. And over the last 100 years, uh, the operating engineers have managed the engines uh, running the equipment, moving from steam to diesel engines. They've uh, managed the change from cable control to hydraulic control. And we're going to manage this change, too, and become masters of our craft and, and understand the technology. One more question before we get to Gateway. Some of the teaching methods use a lot of video and, and, and high-tech stuff. I don't have any other word to describe it. Describe it. Well, there, there are apps that are developed uh, that'll simulate heavy equipment operation. There are simulators. We, we own several that uh, simulate dirt-moving equipment, cranes, drills, concrete pumps. Uh, with the magic of the Internet and Bluetooth technology, uh, we can simulate uh, two cranes picking a large object. And you could be on a simulator uh, in California, and I could be at the one at our training center, yet we're working in tandem. Uh, so th it offers great training opportunities for our people. You know, it's interesting on this, um, even though I've, I'm a student of leadership, I've talked about that a lot here, someone heck of a lot smarter than me once said, innovate or die, you say? Absolutely. Agree with it. Uh, because this is going to be the technology. Autonomous equipment um, means there's no physical operator in the seat, but there's still the computer programming and everything that has to go on in the background. And so there will still be work associated with it. So again, people should never confuse the fact that there's artificial intelligence, more technology and innovation than ever before, but the human component will, whether it's the operating engineers or any industry, I'm not here to be on a soapbox, but you will always need, even immediate, you will always need the human component. Gateway, where are we with the tunnel? Is it happening? And President Trump, in or not in with the feds? Uh, well, a new application went in in August. Um, and some of the parameters changed. Who's on the application? Is it New York, New Jersey? Uh, Port Authority, Amtrak. Uh, but what's happened is uh, Gateway Development Corporation went out and priced some things. Uh, Governor Murphy and Governor Cuomo uh, got out front and uh, got some of the front-end things done, opened the door to possible design-build, uh, made sure that mitigation plans were in place. What does that mean, mitigation plans? Well, for environmental mitigation. Got it. Um, by having all these things in place, they were able to define upfront costs better. So the application that went in actually shows the cost of the tunnel to be $1.4 billion less than the previous application. Mm -hmm. uh, so it looks like a, a better application. You know, I was watching NJTV News did a great story recently. Check it out. Um, Governor Christie started the new uh, Christie Institute, if you will, at Seton Hall Law School, and he had Governor Cuomo on. And one of the things they talked about was the Gateway Tunnel, and they talked about a meeting they had with the president in which the president said directly to them, according to them, I'm in, the feds will fund it. A, 
what happens if the feds do not fund the gateway tunnel? And B, does that mean it's dead? Well, right now, the, the funding, the application that went in, the grant that they're seeking is about half the cost of the tunnel. So at least we're getting to a point where we're going to know whatever the metrics might be that the federal government or the administration would expect. Um, in this application, Amtrak has moved their buy-in up $600 million. They're putting more in is what you're yes. saying. Yes. So there's more of a, more of a stakeholder uh, piece of it. The Port Authority has made more of a commitment to it. The two governors uh, and the state legislatures in each state uh, passed legislation and created the Gateway Development Commission, which can receive federal funds, but also uh, track costs and, and manage the Greg, project. Greg, got about a minute left. Let's do this. By the way, we're talking, if you're listening on the audio side, Greg Olivey from um, International Union Operating Engineers, Local 825. He's a business manager there. Real quick, if Gateway doesn't happen, 20 seconds, what happens to us? Uh, the economy in this area is completely under distress. Uh, it's you know, 20 to 30 percent of the GDP of the nation flows on the Northeast Corridor. 13 percent of Manhattan's workforce goes through those tunnels daily. Um, what that would cascade to in property values in, in northern New Jersey along the rail lines is horrific. The New York Times just did a great story about uh, one of the rail lines that goes from Middletown, New Jersey, into the city um, and just what Late Trains is doing. So shutting down the tunnels would, would kill the economy around here. Greg Lally, 30 seconds on wind power. Uh, wind power, we're hoping to see in the next uh, 25 to 30 months. Um, there's a lease that's been approved that would put 96 wind turbines off the coast of New Jersey. Uh, so we're looking forward to what that would mean in terms of onshore construction, uh, doing the manufacturing, and, and then possibly going out there in the ocean and putting those in there. So a, a great job opportunity across the economy. Greg Lalavi, 2.0, um, <laughs> business manager, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. Greg, thank you, Greg. Great to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Stay with yeah. us. We'll be right back right after this. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're now joined by Tim Sullivan, CEO, New Jersey Economic Development Authority, and Jose Lozano, President and CEO of Choose New Jersey. Gentlemen, good to see you. Great seeing you. Thanks so much for having us. Now, as we do this program, it's the beginning of October. Just back from India. In India. Describe the trip. Uh, six days, seven cities, over 50 meetings, and over 1,000 engagements with companies. And the governor was right there? Governor was there with a, a, a full supportive delegation. Yeah. Describe the goal of something like this. Well, the goals were, I think, were, were several. It was primarily an economic development mission. Um, you know, New Jersey is one of the biggest recipients of foreign direct investment from Indian companies already, and we want to grow that uh, as much as we can. New Jersey and India have longstanding cultural ties and, and uh, you know, people-to-people uh, -people relationships that is an enormous asset in trying to build a, a relationship with an economy that's as big and as, as growing as fast as India. So uh, this, was a, this was about both short-term, uh, getting some jobs uh, announced right here in New Jersey, but also building a long-term relationship with, with, with India. Let's talk about some of these jobs. Yeah. How many are we talking about? Over 1,200 jobs. Okay. Yep. And we, Jose, we've known each other a long time. <laughs> Potential jobs, real jobs, what are no, we talking about? The, these are real jobs that CEOs looked at the governor and looked at us and said, we are going to commit to expanding our companies and our footprint in New Jersey. It's a great place that we're doing business there. We're really successful, and we're ready to expand. And so they made the commitments, and within three companies alone, we, we over 1,200 jobs. Are there certain that's types? Just, okay, that's just the immediate jobs. I think Those long term, over the next year, I think... Yeah. Uh, I think the governor and our team collectively believe, you know, we'll probably double or triple that yep, number. Are there certain types of companies? 
Yeah, mostly in the IT and the professional services section of the house. Yeah. What makes it interesting, we've had so many conversations with those who have argued, New Jersey's not attractive. It's the business, business climate. The, the economics don't work. The taxes are too high. Regulation. And you come back and you tell me about these jobs. By the way, before you even answer, let's just say that Choose New Jersey and the EDA working with us on an innovation series and being very supportive of that. So go ahead. Make the case, because some others see it differently. This is a really, really easy narrative. The, the, it's a great place to not only raise a family, it's a great place for you to establish a business. You have easy access to the, it's a, New Jersey is a global gateway into all of North America. And these companies who provide professional services and IT support see, see the potential of not only being in New Jersey, but having great access to all their clients. And they're not asking about taxes. They're not asking about regulation. Come on. No. No, no. The, the, the main focus of our conversation was really about talent. Can yeah. they, can, what do you mean? Can they get the workforce that they yeah. need to fill the jobs that they want to that they want to uh, hire for here? How in do New we rate that way, Tim? Toward the very top of the pack, if not number one. Having the number one public school system in America matters a lot. Uh, having a great uh, network of higher education uh, institutions matters a lot. Having things like the number one concentration of uh, scientists and engineers in our economy anywhere in the world per square mile is yeah. an enormously important selling point when you're talking about companies that are in the innovation and, and sort of talent-driven spaces. You know, we had uh, Regina Gia uh, check our, our, mm. our website. She was on recently, and here's what she said, okay? Um, well, certainly, we're talking about, I asked her about what makes the, uh, the state attractive or not. She said, well, certainly, the tax burden. We're at the bottom. You're just talking about the top. By the way, it was I think Education Week that selected our public schools as the best in the yeah, number one. Number one. But here's what, what Regina Gia said: former chief of staff, in fact, to Governor Chris Christie, uh, heads the organization called Help Me in the Garden State Initiative. We're at the bottom, close to the bottom on every list: cost of running a business, cost of living, property taxes, you name it. So the cost of operating here is falling behind other states. Look, it's a, yes, it is expensive to do business here. Yes, it's expensive. The taxes are expensive. But you get what you pay for. Being the number one school districts in the world, I mean, in the country, doesn't come cheap. There's a cost associated. We have roads and infrastructure that we're investing in. We, have, we move people and products better than anyone else in the country. And with all of that comes with a cost. Yeah. And, and I think the argument is that, you know, Governor Murphy inherited a, a stagnant economy. I think we'd agree with that. Uh, We've got an economic development plan that was released a little more than a year ago that's got a robust series of a set of initiatives to grow the economy, particularly the innovation-centric parts of the economy, because we're not seeing uh, fast enough job growth and fast enough wage growth that we'd like to see to really support. You're not satisfied with it. Absolutely not. No. We've got a lot of work to do. We're, yep. we're, we're pleased that unemployment's at a record low. We're pleased that more people are working in New Jersey today than at any point since they've started keeping statistics. That being said, we've got a lot of work to do. So let's do this. It's interesting. The other part of this, I'm, I'm fascinated. You talk about these jobs. 1,200 confident? Yeah, about 12. Oh, yeah, very okay. confident. Yeah. On, the low, on the lower side. That's okay. on the low side. What role did tax incentives or credits play in that, Mr. Sullivan? Zero. <laughs> Unequivocally, zero. We, hold on. Three companies made commitments to, to add 100, uh, 1,250 jobs. No tax incentives. Does it not even come up? In those conversations, it no. didn't. I would say I, They don't know. ask, what's the deal? How do you, in, in, you know, those, they want to sweeten this deal for no. us? No. So we were, you know, we had, as Jose said, we probably, between one-on-one -on -one meetings and group settings, we probably were with several hundred, if not a thousand companies. The number of times with me that the um, tax incentive conversation came up, you know, a handful, less than a handful, something like that. You know, when you're, the further away you get from... America and from New Jersey, the more the fundamentals of New Jersey stand out so brightly. To be in the heart of the Northeast Corridor, that's 20% of the U.S. GDP. We sit literally geographically in the middle right. of it, connected by, you know, railroad and other infrastructure to that, to, that, to that part of the economy. The talent pool that we have, those are the fundamentals that people really care about first and foremost. Bring it closer to home. Someone watching says, oh, great, that's India. 
Indian companies in India coming here, new jobs. What does it mean? What could it mean? Should it mean for the citizens of this state? Number one, these are jobs that are going to be here in New Jersey, right? They're going to be hiring local folks, local talents, and growing the state's economy right here, right at home. And New Jersey's home to several hundred international companies that make, right. US, that make New Jersey their U.S. or their North American headquarters. They employ a ton of people in New Jersey. This is a, more international investment into New Jersey is a good thing for New Jersey. When you're there, it's interesting, you're saying when you move away, they don't ask about some of the closer-to-home issues. Right, right. But they do have concerns, right? Mm -hmm. Is workforce at the top? For international companies, yeah. Talent and workforce is always yep. the number one topic of discussion. Yep. Who do we have? What do we have access to? Okay, the other part I'm curious about. Uh, by the way, Choose, who financed this? Uh, Choose New Jersey uh, is a not-for-profit organization yes. that raised funds, uh, and we, we supported the mission. But individuals who participated and attended with us on the delegation paid their own way as well. That being said, what role directly did Governor Murphy, and by the way, those of you wondering, we are definitely going to have Governor Murphy on. He will speak for himself, not just about his uh, economic plan and the innovation initiative, which we're very much committed to, but a whole range of other issues. Talk about the governor's role in this. Governor likes to refer to himself as uh, the head of sales for the state. and that was on <laughs> The head of sales. Head of sales. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was on full display uh, all throughout India. He was, uh, you know, back-to-back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back -to -back meetings, either in, you know, uh, making the pitch in group settings or in one-on-one -on -one sessions with CEOs. Uh, he was... Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it to have a chief executive making the case that strongly and that with that much energy, uh, meeting after meeting after meeting. And it was really important. You know, these are global decision makers and global business leaders who employ, in some cases, several hundred thousand people. Could go anywhere, Tim. Could go, Could anywhere. go anywhere. And they wanted to look, the, you know, the chief executive. They wanted to look the governor in the eye, the person who's responsible for the state's future, and say, "What's going on in New Jersey? Tell us what's going on there before we make this big decision." Was the first lady involved as well? Absolutely. And she, she too, had her own schedule and, and participated with her own engagements, uh, mostly with universities and colleges, but had an opportunity. Need to talk about engagement, inclusiveness. I'm sorry for interrupting, Jose. Uh, sure. Time we have left. Some of the academic institutions that we work with very closely, some of them said that they were on this trip. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. We had Rutgers, Princeton, Jersey City University, Rowan, and NJIT. So Why? Five. What, why do, what do they have to do with it? The, the, the transatlantic relationships, not only with businesses and companies and other peer universities, sharing research, sharing resources. NJIT is going to be great. NJIT is going to be hosting. New Jersey Institute, Institute of Technology yep, around the corner. New Jersey Institute of Technology right here in Newark is going to be hosting a, about a dozen or so startup mm -hmm. companies. Yeah. They are. Yeah. And Steve, Follow this, up this, on the higher ed. End. Yeah, the secret sauce of the innovation economy is partnerships between higher education and the real economy. Having representatives of five of our of our great institutions with us really made that um, very tangible when we were on this trip. We would say, these are the folks we're working with and these are the relationships we can introduce you to uh, if you're going to come to New Jersey and, and expand or build your business. It made, a big, it made a big difference. Having Princeton, the number one ranked university in America, in New Jersey, what an amazing calling card to go with the number one uh, uh, school system in America. Jose. And Tim, I want to thank you for uh, joining us, providing uh, some perspective. People may have read about this trip to India, but getting a better sense. By the way, I'm sure there's a lot of pre-planning going on. Oh, before. yeah, it was about a, about a year in the works. Have you uh, recovered uh, yet? Uh, yeah. Seriously. I'm just, I'm just starting to get some good sleep right now. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, thank you. For State of Affairs, I'm Steve Adubato. See you next time. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by Hackensack Meridian Health. PSCNG, Caldwell University, the law firm of Gibbons PC, MD Advantage Insurance Company of New Jersey, Englewood Health, and by Community Food Bank of New Jersey. Promotional support provided by NJ Advance Media.
and by New Jersey Globe. It feels like I've opened my eyes again And the colors are golden and bright again There's a song in my heart I feel like I belong It's a better place since you came along It's a better place since you came along